I don't need that kind of ridicule. <laughs> okay, but we are in Genesis chapter 47. Uh, and uh, when we last uh, talked uh, together on this chapter, we uh, were looking at uh, kind of the, the middle of the chapter. Uh, we were looking, uh, uh, I think we picked it up in about, <coughs> excuse me, about verse 13 or so and went down through verse 26, looking at this, the story of the famine. We kind of returned to the whole issue of the famine in Egypt and looked at how Joseph administered that situation. And uh, so that's what we looked at a couple weeks ago, and we'll review that here in just a minute. Uh, and then today I want to pick up with verse 27 and finish the chapter. There's just five verses there, but there's actually quite a bit to talk about in those five verses. So, uh, But let's see if we can kind of prime the pump and go back a couple weeks uh, and try and remember what are some of the things that we talked about uh, in those... Uh, in those verses where we discussed Joseph's administration of the famine situation in Egypt. I know I'm pressing my luck here with all you dementia impaired people here, but. <laughs> okay. 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 So, so as uh, as the people came to Joseph, uh, wanting, needing food, they'd already spent all their money uh, because of the famine. They'd exhausted all of their financial resources. So they came to Joseph and they just apparently just asked for a handout. But Joseph declined to give them a handout. And instead, what did he suggest to them? Or what proposition did he make? Okay. Okay. He asked them, or he told them, "You give me your livestock, and I will, and I'll give you food." And we suggest, I suggested to you that that does not is not as exploitive as it might appear to be on the surface. Why? Why is this actually advantageous for them to give him their livestock in exchange for food? What are the advantages of that? They can't take care of them. They can't feed them. It still gives them a sense that, that they're, they're, not, they're not just living on the dole, so to speak, but they're actually doing something. They're contributing something to their own well-being. Uh, they cannot take care of their livestock. And then, of course, what would be the other advantage of giving the livestock to Joseph or to Pharaoh, actually? They're not really in debt to him. Okay. They're, they're not in debt to him. Uh, but the, the actual... The, oh, go ahead. Okay, it keeps them alive. And the other thing is, it keeps the livestock alive. So when, you, when the famine is over, there's going to be some livestock to go back out and till the ground and that sort of thing. The livestock are still going to be alive. So it actually was a, was a very uh, wise uh, offer on the part of Joseph and served uh, to be an advantage not only to Pharaoh, which is pretty conspicuous, but also as an advantage to the people who are struggling at this point. Okay. Well, then they used all of their livestock and they came back to, to, uh, to Joseph again. But by this time, they know that Joseph's not inclined to just give them a handout. So this time when they come back to Joseph and they say, well, our money's gone and our livestock's gone, then what do they do? Sell 
Okay. They sell their land and what else? And themselves. Okay. So basically they're making an offer to become Pharaoh's slaves. Okay. And Joseph uh, agrees to this offer. He takes their land uh, and he takes them as slaves of Pharaoh. And uh, and then he provides them with food. And of course, that led us into a fairly lengthy discussion of this whole question of slavery in the Bible. What are some of the things that we observed about that that you remember? It's not like the slavery we sell. Okay, okay. It's it's different. Now that's not to say that uh, that's not to say that in the. in the Old Testament and in the ancient Near East, that there weren't incidences and times and situations where there was highly exploitive slavery going on, like we had uh, in the South or in the Caribbean uh, during the uh, earlier part of our own history. Uh, so those kinds of slavery did exist, but that was not the norm. What are some of the ways in which Slavery in the ancient Near East and slavery in, in, in the Bible is different than the kind of slavery that we're familiar with. You remember some of the things we pointed out? Okay. 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 Slavery was a, the, the, the primary diff, one of the primary differences between slavery as you and I think of it in American history and slavery as it existed in the ancient Near East and in Bible times. One of the significant differences is the motivation of slavery. The motivation of slavery that we're familiar with uh, uh, in, uh, in uh, the uh, antebe- antebellum South or in the Caribbean uh, and even uh, some ancient slavery like uh, Greek and Roman slavery uh, at the time of Christ uh, those kinds of slaveries were designed or that kind of slavery was designed to enhance the wealthy or the elite. Okay, that was the intention. And, and so oftentimes it was very coercive slavery and uh, and was uh, you, you got your slaves through force or coercion or violence, as we saw even with the with uh, American slavery, the, the American slaves were were uh, uh, kidnapped or stolen from Africa by force, by coercion. There was a great deal of loss of life and violence involved. And, and slavery was designed to enhance the well-being of the elite and the wealthy. Okay? The difference is in, the, in, in Bible times and in ancient Near East, slavery was predominantly a social institution designed to protect the poor. It was designed to provide the poor with a way of staying alive. And so when we wrestle with the question of why does why did God why did God not openly condemn slavery in the Bible? Why did God not prohibit slavery in the Bible? The reason is, is because had he condemned it or prohibited it, it would have resulted in the deaths of millions of people who otherwise their lives were preserved because there was this social institution within this patriarchal tribal culture the only social institution that guaranteed that people who were really poor and were facing starvation had some means of escape from that whereby they could, whereby they could live and eat and, and, uh, uh, and, and do somewhat better. So that's one of the primary differences between 
the slavery that we most of the slavery that we encounter in ancient history as opposed to slavery that we're familiar with in our more recent histories. Anything else that you remember that we talked about that that sticks in your mind? Some slavery was voluntary. Okay. Okay. That's Yes, that's the other major difference is that most, not all, but most slavery in the ancient Near East in the Bible times was, was voluntary as opposed to coercive slavery. Okay. So, and, and the classic example is the one we have right here with the Egyptians. The Egyptians are not coerced into slavery here. The Egyptians are in a situation and they come and they voluntarily offer themselves as slaves. It's the way, it's the way they see out of their dire situation. Okay. So, uh, and, and oftentimes, primarily, in fact, the slaves in the ancient Near East had a, had a very, of course, it would be different here in this situation with the Egyptians and Pharaoh, but typically slaves were part of the household because we're dealing with a tribal patriarchal culture. The slaves were actually part of the family, which is quite distinct from the kind of slavery that we encounter uh, in, in, for example, in American history, where you have gang slaves and they live out in the barracks, and and uh, and they really have no uh, very little uh, meaningful relationship with the family. Uh, there are exceptions, of course, to all of this on both sides, both ancient and more modern. But these are some of the differences that we need to be cognizant of when we encounter biblical discussions of slavery, because it's very easy when we encounter the biblical mention of slavery to envision the kind of slavery that we're more familiar with. And so we get all alarmed. Why didn't God prohibit this? Why didn't God, why didn't God step in and prevent this? Uh, but what God did do, is very clear in the law, <coughs> excuse me, is that God did prevent and did prohibit, excuse me, I'm choking up here. <coughs> God did prohibit the misuse or the abuse of slavery. So there are explicit commands in the scriptures, uh, in, in the Mosaic law, about how you were to treat your slaves. And so the kind of abuse that we oftentimes associate with slavery was strictly prohibited in scripture. So God did not prohibit slavery as an institution because as an institution, it was one way that that society and that culture could care for the poor. So he didn't condemn slavery as an institution, but he condemned the misuse and the abuse that oftentimes we associate with slavery. Okay? Anything else or any questions about that that you want to bring up? Well, the people that were uh, in your sermon or whatever they did, you know, went back and farmed the land, got a good deal. And they were probably freer than a lot of employees. Yeah. They had their own property at the farm and they got 80% of it, which is... Yes. Yeah, that's... Somebody else owns the land and gives you the seed to farm the land and and probably gave them the animals or allowed them to use the animals. You get to keep four-fifths of it. That's a pretty good deal. That's a better deal than we have today, isn't it? (laughs) You know, how many of us would be glad to pay only 20% in taxes at this point? Okay. So they really, it really is favorable. And not only is it favorable in comparison to modern times, but it's even favorable in comparison to ancient times because typically the ancient... Uh, the ancient uh, ratio uh, or the ratio in ancient history when you had indentured servants or indentured slaves or tenant farmers or that type of thing, it was usually a, a two-thirds, one-third 
thing or arrangement. So, uh, so what's really striking here is that Joseph's offer to the Egyptians is far more liberal than was typical within the culture at the time. So that's, that's another striking thing about this story. Okay. Well, that's, those are some things we talked about last time. And uh, so the Egyptians now, uh, by the end of verse 26, are, uh, are in this kind of permanent arrangement with Pharaoh, which apparently went on even after the famine. And uh, uh, they, uh, uh, then, then we pick up the story in verse 27. <laughs> let's, uh, yeah, let's begin reading verse 27 and read down through the end of the chapter. He says, Now Israel lived in the land of Egypt in Goshen, and they acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Please, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt. But when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. He said, swear to me. So he swore to him. Then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. Okay. Well, we, we, we transition quite quickly here from this whole story of the famine and the condition of the Egyptians in the context of this famine. We transition now to looking first in verse 27 at the story of the, uh, or the comparison of the condition of the children of Israel in Egypt at about this same time. And then we move in verse 28, we move into the story of the end of Jacob's life. We pick that up in verse 28 and we go uh, and, and we pretty much stay with that theme all the way through chapter 49. We're going to over this next couple chapters beginning here and then through chapter 48 and 49. We're going to pick up three distinct events or occurrences in the life of Jacob related to the end of his life. And, uh, and each one of these, in its own way, expresses to us the faith of Jacob at the end of his life. So the first, of, uh, first one of them here is the request that we just read about, where Jacob makes this request to Joseph about where he would be buried. And he has Joseph pledge or make an oath that he will take him back and bury him in Canaan. That's the first. Then in chapter 48, we have the story of the encounter of Jacob with Joseph's sons, with his grandsons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Okay? The entire chapter 48 is devoted to Jacob's blessing, uh, actually his adoption of the two sons, two grandsons of Joseph as his own sons, and then of his blessing them. Okay? So that is, uh, that's the second kind of end-life event that we see in the life of Jacob. And then the third is chapter 49, where we have the detailed prophecies regarding each one of the twelve sons of Jacob, where Jacob prophesies concerning every one of his twelve sons, not including uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, who he adopted in chapter 48. So, so we're going to be looking over the next few weeks as we're reaching now the end of our study of Genesis, we're going to be looking at this, this closing out of the life of Jacob and the significance of these three events. The a request for burial, the blessing of the sons of Joseph 
and the prophecies concerning his own sons in chapter 49. Those are the things we're going to be looking at. And the thing that bec- that that's so striking about this is that the, the theme that is woven through these three events is the theme of Jacob's faith. Okay, That's the real issue that's being illustrated here. Uh, is or one of the real issues just being demonstrated here is Jacob's faith at the end of his life. And what strikes me about these three events is how much we have seen a change in Jacob. That, that Jacob has he's he's always been a man of faith, and and he's he's always wanted God's blessing and he sought God's blessing and he's he's always you know generally speaking we would think we think of him as a patriarch. And as man of faith, but he was obviously a man with with, with clay feet that probably went all the way up to his neck. And uh, but he he stumbles, he falls, he he fails many times. And so what happens over a period of time is you see that it looks like Jacob becomes rather fatalistic. Okay, so we have that. That, that comment that he makes to Pharaoh where he says, you know, the days of my life have been few and unpleasant. Okay. And, and we see the kind of several repeated comments he makes about dying uh, when, he, when he's still back in Canaan before he comes to Egypt. And he's, it's just kind of like, you know, if, if this happens or this happens, it's going to be the end. I'm just going to die. And there's kind of this fatalistic outlook that kind of pervades Jacob's life. He's, he's kind of like, if you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, he's kind of like Puddle Glum, okay? Uh, and so, what's striking then, when we come to the end of chapter 47 and the next couple chapters, is we see a totally different picture of Jacob. We see a picture of a man who is filled with hope and expectation of the future. And, and that's encouraging to me. Because no matter how much I stumble along in life, I want to know that at the end of my life, I'm going to be a man who is filled with hope and with expectation and with faith and who transfers that hope and expectation onto the younger generation. And that's what we see Jacob doing here at the end of his life. So we have uh, these kind of two elements in these few verses that we've looked at. The, the discussion of Israel and the condition of Israel in Egypt uh, during and after the famine and then the beginning of the stories of Jacob's uh, end-of-life experiences. <clears throat> but first of all, we have this verse 27, which just very briefly discusses the condition of the children of Israel in Egypt. <clears throat> Now, as you read that, verse 27, he says, Now Israel lived in the land of Egypt in Goshen, and they acquired property in it, and they were, and were fruitful and became very numerous. As you read that verse, what strikes you as you read that verse? <laughs> okay, that's the first thing that jumps off the page for you. Particularly, you know, we, of course, we made a break here. We, we did this study on the Egyptian a couple of weeks ago, so we made a break. But, but you read that, and the first thing that jumps out at you is they're doing a whole lot better than the Egyptians. You've got these foreigners that come in from Canaan, okay, and, and they're plopped down here in Goshen, and, and, and they're kind of living high on the hog. Okay, they, they, they've got a cushy situation. The Egyptians are selling their land 
to, to Joseph or to Pharaoh through Joseph. Meanwhile, Joseph is seeing to it that his family can acquire land. So while the Egyptians are losing their land, the Israelites are acquiring the land of the Egyptians. Okay, so they're acquiring land and they're becoming fruitful. It says they're becoming very numerous. Now, this really is striking. We think about it and we read that and you, you may not really dawn on you how numerous they're becoming. But if you flip over just a few pages to Exodus chapter 1, in fact, you might just do that real quick. Just read Exodus chapter 1 in uh, verse uh, 7. It says, But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Now, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. So what we see is, is not just that they're being fruitful, but they're being more fruitful. They're having more descendants. They're having more children than are the Egyptians. So that by the time the story of Exodus begins to open, the Israelites actually, apparently, at least in the perception of the Egyptians, whether or not they had, in fact, but certainly in the perception of the Egyptians, they had proliferated so much they were actually overtaking the Egyptians in number. Okay. So what we see is just this tremendous, mighty blessing on the Israelites in Egypt. And it's set in juxtaposition on the situation of the Egyptians. Now, we, we need to add this caveat here that the passage here is not just dealing with the time of the famine, but quite clearly we get, we're getting here out of the famine and into the time following the famine because it talks about Jacob's life, uh, his 17 years. There were five years of famine left when he arrived in Canaan, or excuse me, in Egypt. So he lives for 12 years beyond that. So, so these verses are taking us beyond the famine. And I don't know what exactly the condition of the Egyptians was following the famine. But it's quite clear, as Mike points out, that the narrator is trying to set a contrast here between the condition of the Israelites and the condition of the Egyptians. Does that cause you any difficulties? And obviously, the, imply, the implication of the question is it ought to have been. <laughs> Does it cause you any difficulty when you see the children of Israel prospering and doing so well while the Egyptians are struggling? Really? I mean, the only difficulty maybe is maybe Joseph was partial to them. But I, I don't know. You, know. you wonder, okay, was Goshen somewhat immune from the famine? it was better land or, or but the, I think the main thing that doesn't cause me difficulty is you know God kind of blessing on them okay okay he, he probably calls it to rain once in a while and he told them they would prosper so they're prospering okay okay Quite clearly what's going on here is the blessing of God. This is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Jacob when he came out of uh, when he came out of uh, of, uh, of Israel or excuse me, came out of Canaan and he stopped at Beersheba. And when he stopped at Beersheba on his way to Egypt, God made a promise that they were going to prosper. So this is quite clearly the blessing of God. But the question that kind of, you know, I mean, if I were an Egyptian and I were standing there looking, you know, I'd kind of go, what's the deal here? <laughs> you know, why are these people 
you know, doing so well. I'm selling my land and they're buying land, you know, and they're not even Egyptians. They're, you know, they're Canaanites or they're from the land of Canaan or whatever. Okay. And so I guess the question that comes to my mind, maybe I'm the only one that thinks this way, but I'm going, is, is God prejudiced here? Is there, you know, is, is God showing some favoritism here towards the children of Israel? And is this right? Is this just for God to treat the children of Israel? I mean, they haven't done anything. Why, why is he treating them this way? And he's, he's letting the Egyptians struggle as they're struggling. Well, I'd say it's because the Egyptians have a lot of gods. And what their gods take care of them. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, actually, if you look at it from one point, he's actually using the children of Israel to bless Israel. If he takes the children of Israel out of Egypt, where are they then? Because if they didn't have Joseph, they would have nothing. Okay. Okay. This really goes, to, I think, to the core of the question. Why does God bless us? Why did God bless Abraham? Well, if you go to Romans, it's God unjust. It says, Jacob, I love you, so I think it. And we're saying there, he wants to bless us. Okay, but, but, he's, but he gives us more to go on with regard to Abraham. Okay, the first reason, first reason he blessed him is because Abraham believed God. Okay, that's the first reason. But what was the second reason why he blessed Abraham. I'm blessing you in order that through you, what? All the nations of the earth would be blessed. Okay? And so, what's, what's really happening here is we, we look at this and it seems so kind of, there seems like an incongruency here and you know, these Israelites are doing so well and the Egyptians are over here and they're struggling so much. And on the surface, it might seem to be somewhat unfair of God. But the reality is that God is blessing the descendants of Abraham in order that he might bless the Egyptians and the nations. So what God's purpose in, in, in blessing the children of Israel is that he might extend the awareness of his greatness to all. Now, how the Egyptians respond to this apparent discrepancy is another issue. That's up to them. But what God's intention for the Egyptians is to look at how God is blessing Israel and to recognize that this is the way the God of Israel is. That the God of Israel is a God who blesses his people. He's a compassionate God. He's a loving God. He's a merciful God. He's a great God. He's a God who can overcome all kinds of obstacles. And this God stands in such stark contrast to our gods that they would then be inclined to worship Yahweh and experience all the blessings that Yahweh affords to those who worship Him and trust Him. That's God's intention. And, uh, and this is, of course, the theme all the way through Scripture, but there's a psalm that particularly illustrates this point that I love. And there's a story behind it in my own experience. When in, 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 the 19, in 1973, in the summer of 1973, I was uh, 
I was on a, uh, an evangelistic team, outreach team uh, in Arkansas. And, uh, and I was, of course, at that point, uh, a young man, uh, unlike I am today. And, uh, and uh, there was a young woman who was also on this team. And over the course of the summer, we began to conclude that the Lord might have intentions for us. Okay to get married. And I was pretty excited about that. I thought this was going to be a pretty good deal for me, you know. And so I was thinking about all the blessings of being married and of being married to this particular woman, young woman. And and I was trying to determine, is this God's will for my life? And uh, and, and I just kept thinking, you know, of all the bennies of this. And and then as I thought through it some more, I began to wrestle with the question, well, you know, what my life is really supposed to be about is communicating the good news of Christ to others and publishing the gospel. Okay, that's that's what my life is to really be about. And it's not to be about accumulating blessings for myself. So I began to wonder, you know, is this even right for me to be desiring to be married and to be desiring all these blessings in light of the fact that's not really what my life is about, is just accumulating blessings to myself. And it, I know it was within 24 hours. It may have been immediately. I don't remember how soon it was. But in the course of just my normal reading of the Psalms every morning uh, for my quiet time, which I've done for 40 more years now, uh, I had read Psalm 66 the day before. And so my psalm for that day was Psalm 67. And if you read the psalm, it's just a brief psalm, but if you read the psalm with me in the context of what I just shared with you, you can see what an impact it had on me. I ended up marrying the woman. In Psalm 67, in verse 1, it says, God be gracious to us and bless us and cause His face to shine upon us. So the psalmist is wanting God's blessing on his life. Okay, Why does he want God's blessing on his life? He says that your way, that your way may be known on the earth and your salvation among all the nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. And I read that psalm and I went, I can get married. <laughs> and so I married Mary. Oh, she married me too, by the way. <laughs> it was mutual. Uh, but, but all the blessing that I have experienced in my life as a result of being married to Mary has two purposes in it. One of them is God just to dump his blessing on me. He likes doing that because I'm his child and because I love him and I trust him and he just loves dumping his stuff on me. Okay, that's one. But it has a far broader purpose than that. And that is that through the blessings that I experienced by being married to Mary, that all the nations of the earth might fear him. And and so it's important for us to understand that the blessings of God on our life have a purpose beyond us. 
all the blessings that we experience in life, we need to look at them in the context of God's greater purpose. He does give us blessings because he's just tickled pink about us. He does dump all kinds of things on us we don't deserve just because he loves us and he loves to bless us and he loves to see the pleasure and the joy that that brings to us in our own experience. But he also gives us these blessings in order that in one way or another, and it works out in various ways with each blessing and with each person, but that in one way or another, through the blessings that you and I receive from the hand of God, that all the nations of the earth would see and understand His greatness and His goodness and His love and His mercy and His grace and His power and be drawn to Him. And so when I am blessed and one who standing right next to me is not blessed in the same way, it's no reason for me to gloat or to think that God, you know, has some kind of, you know, special, you know, that, that I'm just better than the person standing next to me. But it's in order that the person standing next to me might not see me and my blessings, but might see the God who has blessed me. And that is the context in which we are to view all the blessings. So all the blessings of God we receive, we need to get our focus off ourselves. We need to enjoy them, delight in them, take pleasure in them, and then say, God, how can this blessing be used of you that all the ends of the earth might fear you? Well, then we go on to this really intriguing story of of, uh, Jacob's request to Joseph that he not be buried in Egypt but rather that he'd been taken to Canaan. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, there are... Uh, oh, well, before that, we have... Actually, we have uh, verse 28. Excuse me, I'm getting ahead of my story here. <coughs> we have Jacob... It says in verse 28, Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. <coughs> so it just simply you know, kind of gives us the numbers here. That Jacob lived to be 147. I think I mistakenly said uh, a couple weeks ago that he lived to be 149. But he lived to be 147 years. Okay, and uh, that just kind of seems like a random number. <coughs> Jacob uh, lived to be 147. <coughs> uh, and uh, 17 of those years were in Egypt. And there's kind of interesting there. He had 17 years with Joseph before Joseph was sold into slavery. And then he has 17 years with him in Egypt. So that's all kind of interesting. <clears throat> but a couple of commentators point out something that's kind of cool here. Okay. And you people who like numbers, you're going to enjoy this. Okay. <clears throat> uh, how long did Abraham live? Does anybody know? You guys, you got to remember this. We've talked about this, right? You remember this, huh? 180 something. No, no, close but no cigar. <laughs> Abraham lived to be 175. Okay. How long did Isaac live? Open book test. Yeah, you can look. You can look. You remember? 
180. 180 years. Okay? Isn't that cool? Don't you like that? Mike's going, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's the relationship between these numbers? Yeah, there is no relationship between those numbers. Well, you're right, there isn't. They all start with one. Okay. But let's let's just take them one at a time. Let's just take Abraham. What numbers might you multiply to get to 175? Twenty-five times seven. And how do you get to twenty-five? Okay. Now let's do the same thing with Isaac. Okay, but we need three numbers. There are there are actually uh, there are actually several ways you can get there, obviously. But try this. Right? Okay. Now using that, what should be our formula for Jacob? Isn't that cool? And you go, so what? <laughs> what? <clears throat> well, you know, I don't know if there's a so what. But a couple of commentators do mention this. And, they, and, and, and the suggestion is that it could be a, just a rhetorical tool to illustrate how God is working behind the scenes in ways that we don't anticipate. And, uh, and of course, that, you know, when you say rhetorical, that implies that these numbers are created by the narrator, which, of course, they're not. They're, you know, these are numbers that God has determined, these ages. And, uh, but, but still, nevertheless, it can be a way that God is subtly telling us about his, the beauty of his purposes that we don't see. You see, if you just look at this, you don't look at these, you just look at Abraham by itself, there's no real significance in those numbers. Or, or you just look at Jacob by himself, seven, uh, seven times, seven times three. You know, there, there's no, you know, the, the, the formula by itself, it just doesn't seem to make much sense. But when you see them together like this, all of a sudden go, hey, that's cool. There's a pattern there. And, and just a simple lesson, without wanting to overwork numbers thing, and you can get really carried away with numbers in the Bible, but clearly scriptures do put some emphasis on numbers. So I don't want to get carried away with this, but the thing that struck me about this is that, is that any one of these formulas by itself doesn't seem particularly significant, but in their association with one another, they become very beautiful. What is Joseph? Uh, I don't have one for Joseph. <laughs> uh, but these, of course, are the three patriarchs. Okay. And, and, and the, the point is, the, point that, the simple point I wanted to make from this is that, is that our lives by themselves sometimes don't seem to make a lot of sense. 
But it's our lives in relationship to those who come before and who come after us that begin to reveal that God has a marvelous, beautiful plan that he is working out. And oftentimes that plan is not conspicuous or evident to us, right? This is why one of the reasons why I think it's so important for us to understand church history. Because we do not stand alone. We stand on the shoulders of others. And my life is pretty insignificant, except as it has a context of those who have come before me and those who are coming after me. And ultimately, whether I see it in this life or I don't see the pattern till I get to heaven, at some point, you and I, we're going to see the pattern that underlies, that's hidden behind all the other numbers in our life. <laughs> we're going to see the pattern of God's working. And when we, when we do, it's going to be cool. It's going to be really cool. And we're going to say, God, that was really neat. Well, and then we have Jacob's request. And Jacob says to, to his son, he, and it's kind of interesting how he starts. How, how does he start? How does he introduce his request? Before that. How does he introduce it? If I have found favor in your sight. Does anything strike you about that? He's talking to his son. Okay, This is the kind of, this is the way somebody... A lesser approaches a greater and asks for a favor, right? This is the way a servant would approach a king, okay? If I have found favor in your sight, and we see that several times actually in the book of Genesis, where somebody comes to a greater and says, if I found favor in your sight, okay? But here is the father asking the son, if I found favor in your sight. And so what it is really is this is just one more evidence of the fulfillment of Joseph's dreams, right? It's evidence of, it's just one more sign that even now his father recognizes that God has done this thing that Joseph dreamed about so many, many years before. So he, he calls his son to him, presumably because he's too frail at this point to travel himself. He calls his son to him and he says, if I have found favor in your son, place your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. And, and then he asks him to make this vow. Now, he says, put your hand under my thigh. Okay, now we've encountered this type of a vow before. Do you remember where? Yes, yes, exactly. When Abraham wanted to send his servant to find a bride for Isaac... He made him swear a vow that he would not take a daughter from the sons of Can from the daughters of Canaan, uh, and uh, and so he had him put his hand under his thigh. Those are the only two places we have that gesture. Okay, and it's a euphemism. <laughs> it's you know it's a way of saying it that doesn't make us uncomfortable. He's saying, "Put your hand on my private parts." Okay, that's what he's saying. Okay, and and the significance of it is we only have it in the cases of these two patriarchs. Okay. That this vow, this type of a vow is used. And it's like, it's in some ways similar to when we today put our hand on the Bible, which we don't do anymore, but used to, you know, you make a vow, you put your hand on the Bible. Okay? And the idea is you're, what you're doing when you put your hand on your Bible and the Bible and say something or make a promise or make a vow, the idea is, is, is you are associating what you are about to say 
with the truthfulness and the veracity of God's word. Okay. So that's, that's what Jacob is asking Joseph to do. Because the private parts, if you will, under the thigh of the patriarchs represents what? It represents the future. It represents the promise, doesn't it? It represents the promise of God that He's going to give them all these descendants. And through this descendant, the ultimate seed of the woman would come. The Messiah. So all the promise is wrapped up in this idea of the progenitive power of the patriarchs. Okay? And so what Jacob is saying to Joseph is, I want you to make a vow keeping in mind the promises of God. So even though it makes us uncomfortable to think about it, you know, because it's kind of very, you know, weird. Okay, we don't do this nowadays, thankfully. Okay. Uh, apparently, it wasn't done very often in Scripture. These are the only two times we have. Okay. But, but in both cases, it has to do with a person making a vow or a promise in view of the promises of God. The faithfulness of God. And the covenant of God. And so Jacob is saying to his son, the vow that I want you to make is a vow that has to do with the things that God has promised me. And I said that this event and the subsequent two events that we're going to look at, chapter 47, excuse me, chapter 48 and chapter 49, I said these have to do with Jacob's faith. How do I know that? Because Hebrews tells us that it did. In Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews refers in verse 21, he refers to two of these three events in reverse order. And he speaks of Jacob's prophecies concerning his son and Jacob bowing, leaning on his staff or, or bowing at the head of his bed. Okay. So the writer of Hebrews refers to, these, to two of these three events and he says they are evidences of Jacob's faith. So as we look at this little, a little little incident here of him requesting where he's going to be buried, about where he wants to be buried, what's in view here is Jacob's faith in the promises of God. And there are two aspects to, Ju- to Jacob's request. What are the two aspects? What are the two things he asked him to do? First, don't bury the Get me out of Egypt. Okay. Don't bury me in Egypt. And the second request is what? To bury me in the cave of Machpelah. Okay. To bury me in the to bury me in the place where Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Leah are all buried. Rachel, of course, was buried in transit in, uh, near Bethlehem. But the, the others are all buried at the cave of Machpelah there by the Oaks of Mamre by Hebron. Okay. What is today Hebron? Okay. So... He says, that's where I want to be buried. So there are two aspects to his request. And these two aspects emanate from his faith. So I don't want to be buried in Egypt because Egypt is not where I belong. But they've done pretty good in Egypt. They made a lot of money in Egypt. They're really prospering in Egypt. But in spite of all that prosperity and all that blessing and how well they're doing in Egypt... Jacob says, this is not my future. And this is not your future. So don't bury me here. Get me out of Egypt. 
you know, and I and if I just an obvious application of that, you know, in this life sometimes we you know we get we get a lot of God's blessings and God does well, you know, and we have you know, we have things God gives us and and the mistake we make is we get attached to it and we get thinking this is where the future is, but this is not where our future is. God get me out of Egypt. And then he says, you go bury me with Abraham and Isaac. And I'm thinking, what difference does it make where the guy is buried? What difference does it make? He's dead. Where does he care? He cares because he knows there's a resurrection. There are those who are those skeptics who believe that the whole idea of an afterlife is kind of foreign to the Old Testament. I tell you, it ain't foreign to the Old Testament. And Jacob here, as Hebrews points out so clearly, is speaking out of faith and he's saying, there's a resurrection. And when I come out of the grave, I want to come out of the grave with granddad and dad. When there's a resurrection, I want to be resurrected with with Abraham and Isaac. And when I come out of the grave with Abraham and Isaac, I want to be standing on that land of promise. And folks, it's going to happen. As sure as you and I are in this classroom this morning... There is a time coming when Abraham and Isaac and Jacob will come out of that cave near Hebron and will stand in the land that God promised each one of them personally. Such are the promises of God. And so we here we have Jacob at the very end of his life, a guy who stumbled along from one you know, one situation to another and ricocheted off the walls and, and has at times in his life been admittedly fatalistic. Comes now finally to the end of his life and I think through the goodness of God he's seen in what he's done through Joseph. He is now again overwhelmed with God and overwhelmed with God's faithfulness and he realizes, I've got a future and my kids have got a future. And my grandkids have got a future. And that's what all the next couple chapters is going to be about. It's going to be about the future of Jacob and the future of his children and the future of his grandchildren on for generations after generations after generations. And this is Jacob's mentality at the end of his life. What's going to be the mentality at the end of your life? What's going to be the mentality at the month? Am I going to be filled with hope for the future? We look around us and we see all the stuff that's going around the world around us. We get real pessimistic, right? That is not how God wants us thinking. He doesn't want us living in fear and He doesn't want us living in pessimism. He wants us living in hope and expectation and joy and anticipation of the future because we have the promises of God. And I don't know what all lies between here and the ultimate fulfillment of those promises and some of it might be very ugly, but what God wants of us is to be focused on that future. And not only to be focused on that future, but what strikes me is that 
when Joseph comes to die, as we will see in chapter 50, he makes the same request Jacob made. Take me back home, bury me back home. So Jacob passed that hope on to the subsequent generations. So it's not just that I should be filled with hope and joy and anticipation of the future at this stage in my life and as I get older, but I have a responsibility to be passing that on to the younger generation so that they are filled with that same hope and expectation and joy. When Hebrews records this incident, because of the difference in the translation between the Hebrew text and the Septuagint, when, when the writer of Hebrews refers to this, he says, Jacob worshipped leaning on his staff. And I've shared this story with Paul, but I want to share it again because it's so meaningful to me. At my father's funeral, about five years ago, uh, they had they had moved to Lawrence, Kansas, about a year before, and so they were living in Lawrence. and And there was a gentleman in the chapel that my father was attending uh, that last year of his life. There's a gentleman, a friend of mine, was about my age, and and he stood up at the funeral and he shared how. He, his father was a friend of my father's and they were both about the same age, of course. And he shared how one time, one Sunday, he was at, at church and, and he went back into the men's room and he said, there were Don and Fred. Fred was my father. Don was his father. He said, there were Don and Fred. They were both standing there in the bathroom and they were both leaning on their canes and talking about the Lord. And he said, when I saw that, I thought of that verse in Hebrews, that at the end of Jacob's life, he worshipped leaning on his staff. And as Phil shared that during the funeral, I remembered the last time I saw my dad two weeks before. We had been up. Uh, we'd been up for a. Uh, he had. Uh, he and my second mom. My first mom had died, and so he got remarried, and and we had celebrated their 20th anniversary just two weeks before he passed away. And so I was up there for the 20th anniversary celebration. And at the end, we were getting ready to come back to Norman and sort of loading up the kids and everything. And we went over to his house and just to say goodbye. And we come in the living room there and dad says, let's pray. And so my father stands there and prayed for his kids, prayed for his grandkids, leaning on his staff. And as Phil shared that story about the bathroom at the funeral, that's the image that comes to my mind. The last thing I remember of my dad is a man of faith praying for his kids and his grandkids laying on his staff just like Jacob. And we're not old folks yet. You know, we feel like it. We're not old folks yet. But, you know, we're starting to think about that point in our life. And one of the things we need to think about as we approach that point in our lives is we need to think about this example of Jacob. I want to be like that. I want to be a man at the end of my life who is imparting hope and expectation and faith into my children and my grandchildren and their children after them. Okay. Well, next week we'll go into the story of Joseph's kids.